Well, if you would uh, take your Bible and open to the book of Malachi, our first reading so well read this morning on page 801. This is the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and it's pronounced Malachi, not Malachi, Malachi, and it's not a very nice book. It's a wonderful book, but it's not a very nice one. Malachi chapter 1, our passage today, 6 to 14. And the people of God are in a complete mess again. Uh, It's about 60 years after they've returned from exile and they've built the temple, but the temple's a bit shoddy. The glory days of David and Solomon are behind them. They're still under the control of Persia. They live in a backwater of empire with enemies all around. And the nature of their disobedience has changed. They've not openly rejected God and built idols and gone to worship golden calves. On the surface, they still look very orthodox. And they are still going to church and they're still offering sacrifices, which was the Old Testament way. They're going through the motions, but their hearts are not in it. They blamed God for their difficulties. And they had become completely disenchanted with serving God. So they were going through the motions, but half-heartedly. Faith had become a bit of a bore, and they weren't brave enough to throw it in. It just really didn't make any difference in their lives. That's why I say it's not a nice book, this last book of the Old Testament. Because God brings his word, his loving word, to bear on this spiritual disease, which is afflicting his people, And he does that by addressing a variety of symptoms. We'll see as we go through it. They were refusing to give God 10% of their income. That was one symptom. They were divorcing their Jewish wives and marrying women who were not believers. They were taking advantage of the poor and weak. They had lost their grip on the love of God. And there there was a culture of critical conversations amongst them that destroyed their serving of God. And here is the problem with the God of the Bible. The problem with the God of the Bible is that his glory is far greater and far higher than we could possibly grasp. And our need is far bigger and deeper than we can imagine. And we don't like that spread. We don't like that distance. It's just not manageable. And one of the easiest ways to try and make it manageable is to bring God's glory down a bit to our size and to bring our need up so it's not so dire and to lessen the immensity and enormity of the spiritual distance. This is the spiritual disease. Uh, Australian writer Peter Adam describes it this way. He says, it's living, they were living without the courage to respond to God with wholehearted obedience or the courage to refuse him. They were hearing God's word and they were neither believing it nor denying it. It was a grey response of indifference and disbelief, practical atheism, knowing that God exists but living as though he doesn't. So here in this passage what God does is he exposes one more symptom, it's particularly amongst the clergy, and then he speaks about the cure. So I've got two points. The disease and its symptom, and the second point is obviously the cure. 
The first place, this spiritual disease that we're talking about, the first place it manifests itself is in our attitude in worship. Look down at verse 6. Let me read a couple of lines. God says, A son honours his father, glorifies his father, and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is my glory? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts, O priests who despise my name. But you say, How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, How have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you and show you favour, says the Lord of hosts? It's the highest possible privilege for any of us to worship the Lord of hosts. But what the people in Malachi's, Malachi's day were doing is they were just bringing roadkill as sacrifice. They'd completely lost sight of the fact that God was the Lord of hosts. They had lost the desire and joy in the praise of God. Their worship was dull, sterile and corrupt. And you remember that God gave the sacrificial system so that he could dwell with his sinful people. And there were two parts of the sacrifice. The first was the animal, which was a substitution for me and for my sin. It needed to be, animal, uh, be an animal that was out without any blemish. This God makes clear over and over and over again in the law. And that animal was offered as an atonement for sin. And the animal dies as a mark of the seriousness of my sin and that I deserve death for my sin. And as the animal dies, God promises my sin is covered and atoned and I can live with God. It's a very costly expression of the holiness of God. But the other side of the sacrifice is the attitude of the person offering the sacrifice. If my heart is humble and obedient to God, then the sacrifice is acceptable. If my heart is not humble and obedient to God, it's not going to work. And you need both, of course. If I just offer an animal without my heart, that's a useless thing to do. If I just offer my heart without the animal, there's no covering of the sin. The people of God in Malachi's day were offering God their leftovers. They were giving God what cost them nothing. Animals with disease that they could no longer eat or sell or use. Animals that were injured or missing a couple of limbs or an eye. Any old roadkill. They knew that they were to give the Lord the firstborn from the flock, the lamb without blemish. But they were keeping that for themselves and giving God what had no value. Things that were polluted, rancid carcasses, any old thing with, will do. And God says, that shows exactly what you think of me. You know, happy birthday, darling. I found this half-melted ice cream on the pavement and I've wrapped it in some raw chicken. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, dear RBC Mortgage Department, thank you for your letter of overdue payments. Here's a photograph of me with my piggy bank. I hope that will satisfy you. Or I invite you over to my place for a meal and you find me barbecuing some mice and rats and a dead bird that I found in the yard. Try that on the governor, says God. See how far that gets you. They were still coming to church. They were still offering sacrifices. They were still putting some money in the offert offertory plate but it meant nothing to them 
because it cost them nothing. And they were treating God with less honor than they did their parents and employers. And in doing it, they'd overturned the whole point of the sacrificial system. They'd lost sight of the seriousness of their sin and their need for atonement. They didn't really believe in sin anymore. And so they had a trivial view of God and his love. Now, <clears throat> those of us who are older, there's been a cultural shift which uh, in the last 50 years, which I generalise, 50 years ago it was believed that when people did bad and criminal things it was because they had too high a view of themselves and what was needed was more laws and incarceration. Now that's been reversed. And now we believe people do bad and criminal things because they have too low a view of themselves. So we teach our children to believe in themselves that they can do anything they put themselves to as long as they believe and the greatest love of all is learning to love yourself. Yeah. And I think as Christians it's impossible for us to resist this. We've become quite timid and tentative about the whole issue of sin and the holiness of God. And we think about witness more as a marketing exercise so that we minimize sin and we max maximize the positives and so that Jesus' death is no longer a sacrifice for our sins but just a kind of an, an object lesson in the kindness of God. I used to think that the doctrine of sin, the Bible's doctrine of sin, was the only empirical, empirical, was the only doctrine in Christianity that was empirically provable. But I've come to see the opposite. That the Bible's view of sin is not something any human could ever invent. It has to be revealed by God. In fact, it's completely hidden from us unless God reveals it. Left to ourselves, we would never think that we are as lost as God says we are. Which I think is why it's so easy to lose the wonder of God's love for us. Because the two things go together. If you take away the depth of our need, you also take away the height of God's grace and love. And it's not just uh, the people of God here, it's the priests in the temple. You despise my name, says the Lord of hosts. Because once we lose sight of the love and glory of God, we gradually become blind to our own need and we easily despise God. And I think this is one of the most worrying symptoms of the disease, which is rife here in the people of God in Malachi's day. They can't see it, they can't see it. <clears throat> so... Throughout this book, whenever God challenges his people, what the people do is they don't repent, they say, how? Um, so you saw in our passage in verse 6, how have we despised your name? Or verse 7, how have we polluted you? Or down in 2.17, you've wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? And there are, there are several more. And the most important is the first one in verse 2, which Dan covered last week. Let's look back at chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? How have you, how have you loved me? Try that in your marriage, see what happens. God, things are difficult. We've got lots of problems and you just don't say, you just don't seem to be solving them. You say you love us and we're willing to believe it. You just need to prove it. Give us some evidence. And you can hear the grief in God's words. Where is my honour? Where is my glory? You're treating me as insignificant. <clears throat> 
Now, um, I think this is a very Anglican temptation. I think we are very prone to this, to go through the motions, but to despise God in our hearts. To have uh, music, good liturgy, but to treat God with contempt in our hearts. And in God's mind, that's worse than open rebellion. Because we deceive ourselves in the process. We dishonour God and we're dishonest with ourselves. They thought if they just kept the ritual going, things would be okay. It doesn't really matter what we offer to God. We're going to keep the best for ourselves, so long as we give something. And my guess is they were not brave enough to say these things openly, just as we aren't. But their actions demonstrated the reality. The wonder, of, the wonder and reality of God's love had been lost. And it had turned into cynicism. If you look down at verse 13, but you say, oh, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what's been taken by violence, lame, sick. You bring this as an offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? You know, um, if your heart is not in it, it, just, it quickly becomes tiresome, doesn't it? And it's possible to play a game of pretend with ourselves where we give God the dregs because we think it might keep him happy and then it gives us room for compromise. But throughout the Bible, the thing is that you can't serve God and mammon for long. You can't sin and try and live for the Holy Spirit for long. You can't serve yourself and God for long. God won't allow it. And he says wonderfully in verse 10, he would rather that we shut things down than continue the charade. See verse 10? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. It matters to God whether we bring him the cream of our hearts and our energies. And if we won't, God will say, go away. He takes no pleasure in the externals for their own sake. He delights in obedience. And I think it's a pretty devastating diagnosis. I told you it's not a nice book. It's a devastating di diagnosis. And before we move to the second point, it's good to just pause and ask ourselves some questions. I mean, do I examine our hearts. Do we have some symptoms of this disease, the middle-aged spiritual disease? Has your faith become a bit dreary, a bit of a burden? Uh, do you find yourself saying things that, that are destructive to the serving of God? Um, are you giving God your best or what's left over? Uh, do you judge the love of God by your circumstances or by his word? Uh, do you have a sense of privilege in serving him? And if we step back just a moment, I think the very fact that God is reasoning and revealing this to his people, as we'll see in chapter 3, is to call them back, to draw them to their senses before too late. And if we feel some of these symptoms, then what is the cure? How does God draw us out of this? And secondly, then I will move to what God says here, what he offers in change and restoration to us. And what he offers is two promises and the first is a grand vision of the future. He will make his name great among the nations. And it's so important, God says it three times. Just look down at the passage. I want to show you these verses. Verse 5, the one before our passage. 
God says to these people, your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. You may be afflicted with this disease, but I'm going to cause my name to be great beyond the borders of Israel. Or verse 11, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And then the end of verse 14, the last sentence of the chapter. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. It's very important. God is not a needy God. God does not need us to honour him. He doesn't feel insecure when we don't give him glory. He doesn't rely on our obedience for the greatness of his name. His name is great. And he undertakes to spread the greatness of his name beyond the borders of Israel. So that one day from the rising of the sun to its setting, there will be a pure offering and the name of God will be treated as great by all. And the name of God is not a label, you know, just a random attachment. Uh, the name of God is God as he is toward us, as he's revealed himself to us. And even if God's people refuse to give glory to that name and despise his name, it doesn't change the glory of the name, nor his commitment to spreading the wonder of his name throughout the world. It's, a, it's an incredible promise to have, I think, in the last book of the Old Testament. It goes right back to creation, when God determined to bless all the people of the world. Creation, the call of Abraham... Through you, Israel, all the families of the earth will be blessed. <clears throat> but here, the end of the Old Testament, it finishes with disappointment and hope, disappointment in the people of God. But the wonder of hope that God's promise is that he will ensure his name will go forward in all the world. And Israel and God's people may bring him their leftovers, but that's not the way God treats us. In fact, God sent to us his very best, his only son, the perfect, purest, unblemished, sinless son of God to be the lamb of God, who offered himself up for us a full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice for sins once for all upon the cross, which is able to cover the deepest, darkest and most evil of our sins. And it does show us the wonder of his love. And by his spirit, God has created a mission church. And the purpose of the mission church is to spread his glory among the nations. And the failure of God's people, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, doesn't diminish his glory and it doesn't change his desire to spread his name. What it means is, is that God's people miss out doubly they miss out on the fellowship with the father and the son and they miss out on taking their place in the great purpose of god to establish his name you see this purpose of god which runs from creation to new creation is like a great river and when we come to trust in christ we are caught up into that river and we draw others into the currents of his love we pray we've already prayed today hallowed be your name we give him our best. We do what we can to spread his name. But if we stop and if we catch this disease that the people in Malachi have, we drop like a stone and the river just floats by us. So the cure for our disease 
is firstly this great promise for us. That we're not here to keep the rituals going, to do what we've always done. We're here for the name of the great God of heaven and earth. We are here so that his name will be great among those who don't know him. And if God has made this promise and if God is working to bring all things under the feet of Jesus Christ, there is no sacrifice that we can make for him that's wasted. There's no prayer, there's no word, no gift, no service that he doesn't take up into this great purpose. And he deserves the best. But there is a second promise that we touched on last week. And this is the promise with which the book begins. The whole book of Malachi begins with this mighty declaration in verse 2, I have loved you. It's like a stake in the ground, a great fact and truth, the beginning of the book of Malachi. In the Hebrew, it's a perfect, which the experts say can be translated, I have always loved you and I love you now. Despite the fact that you despise me, I have loved you in the past and I still do. So that God is not calling us to love him with everything we have so that he will accept us. He's not saying, if you love me, then I will love you. No, no, no. It's the other way around. Real faith and real returning to God begin with the realization that his love for us is not based on our response or our obedience, but on his free and sovereign decision to place his love on us. Isn't that great? And I think the only cure for spiritual apathy and compromise and blindness is to see again the greatness and the priorness of his love and his name. And we know much more about the love of God than Malachi's audience. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that we by his poverty might become rich. We've seen that inexpressible gift. And Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame because of the joy that was set before him, and he now sits at the right hand of God. And he has provided the complete and final and eternal atonement for sins and so we don't offer God physical sacrifices animals anymore but the one book in the New Testament that speaks about Jesus sacrifice more than any other says this through Christ let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name I encourage you to go and have a look at Hebrews 13 what does that mean what does our sacrifice of praise mean it's all these practical things. Brotherly love. Let brotherly love continue. Be hospitable to strangers, to those who are mistreated. Let the marriage bed be kept undefiled. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Don't neglect to do good and, sh and share what you have. These sacrifices, the writer says, are pleasing to God. For here we have no lasting city but we seek the city that is to come. So we pray that God would equip us with everything good that we may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.